Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. <sighs> I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about hot chocolate. About inflatable T-Rex costumes. About not living up to what your parents perceive as your own potential. About gingerbread house projects, ambitious holiday crafting projects. About mistaking holly for mistletoe. About just the one bed. About the great barren white landscape to the north. But most of all, it's about romance novels. And ourselves. This week, this week, we're reading One Bed for Christmas, a Baldwin Village novella by Jackie Lau. I think so. This was recommended to us by Sarah Leonard Carmody on Instagram. So we're doing one contemporary December holiday book and one historical. Now I put out an ask for December holiday works. I didn't get any Hanukkah recommendations. I didn't get any Kwanzaa recommendations. Solstice recommendations. Yeah, I didn't get any solstice recommendations. Let's see what other December holidays. I didn't get any Jay-Z's birthday recommendations. Mm. I didn't get any National Gazpacho Day recommendations. We didn't get New Year's recommendations either. Although that seems like a very perfect niche for romance novellas. You know, I think that's actually something we might get into with this episode. Romantic holidays. But let's start things off by giving our listeners a quick summary of the text. Do you want me to read the back of the book and you react or vice versa? I'd love it if you'd read it. Okay, you love being read too. You will always choose to be read too. I do. It's 100% correct. Give me the choice and that's the one I'll take. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Just hear those sleigh bells ringling, a ting ting tingling too. Sleigh bells, sleigh bells. Come on, it's lovely weather for us, lay right together with you. It's so hard to find the summaries on this page. Okay, here we go. Let me be clear. I've been friends with Caitlin Ng for more than a decade, and I've had a crush on her for just as long. And I've known all that time that I wasn't her type. What? When we met, we were both studying computer engineering at university. She was near the top of the class, and I was in danger of flunking out. Now she's a CEO, and I, well, poignant ellipses. Not. <laughs> I'm wearing an inflatable T-Rex costume and dancing along to Christmas carols sung by an elderly barbershop quartet. Mm. Yes, I'm being paid to do this. And that's how Caitlin finds me when she leaves work late in the middle of a snowstorm. She asks to stay with me because her house is farther away and her power is out. Of course I say yes. When the heat goes out in my apartment and she asks me to join her in bed to snuggle for warmth, I say yes, too. 
but being so close to her is dangerous for my heart. Or could a weekend of Christmas fun actually lead to the romance I desire? I don't know. So that summary is from the perspective of our hero. Wes Chang. Wes Chang. First thoughts on that summary. Wes Chang has bad self-esteem and what I would call whimsical professional tastes. He's a freelance graphic designer, but he is supplementing his income by being the joke element for a barbershop quartet who wants to branch out. The barbershop quartet is one of the richest pieces of this text. Heartily agree. It is a four-piece quartet. It's right there in the name. Uh, But it's a bunch of old men who want to break into the Christmas bar scene, and so they hire him to wear an inflatable T-Rex costume and do interpretive dance. And while he might not have the best self-esteem, he does have a great deal of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I think that's something we don't parse very often, but probably should. I 100% agree, because I think one of the things that is shocking about Wes Chang to our heroine is that she assumes the two are synonymous. That his physical charisma and his social affability parlays precisely into good self-esteem, wherein it truly just does not. But she herself is sort of lacking in self-esteem. She's the founder of a dating app because I guess that's what we're doing now. The book (laughs) does like acknowledge, I think it makes like a fleeting reference to, uh, oh, we read it with the French seams. The kiss quotient. Yeah. The book makes a fleeting reference to the kiss quotient, but probably should have also made a fleeting reference to the right swipe. Irony drips as we find our heroine, the founder and CEO of a very successful dating app company, but she herself cannot find love and indeed does not find love on her own platform because it turns out she found love back in her freshman year of college. The old fashioned way, back in school. Back in school. If she had only opened her eyes. But it's really interesting. Wes is really coming at the relationship from like a deficit standpoint. Yes. And for her, It just doesn't exist. Yes. So maybe Wes isn't wrong. (laughs) I love that you said, I guess we're just doing this now, because it does seem like female CEO, the only thing that she can be the CEO of, it seems, is a dating web company. There's just been the Netflix movie about that with, what's her name from She's All That? Rachel D. Cook? Yeah, she plays a lawyer who's trying to sue the CEO who's a woman of a dating (laughs) app company. We have the right swipe. I think for the parlance of uh, female CEO, the easiest one is going to be a tech startup. And then the easiest tech startup for romance is going to be a dating app. It feels like the cupcake baker of our moment. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I feel like a lot of contemporary ladies who owned their own business, like, were cupcake bakers, like, 10 years ago. We're also talking about Hallmark, right? I mean, yeah, but also just, like, in the zeitgeist, like, Bridesmaids, what's her name? She owned a failed bakery. Bakery, yeah. Which almost feels responsive to... everything else that was going on instead of being like a whimsical success story she was just like desperately needing fondant alone to make one elaborate perfect cupcake mm-hmm. i think that's what we're doing now and like the framework is also very hallmark in that you know she's the woman with the pants right she's a powerful ceo and she needs this like dumpy whatchamacallit to get her to realize the true meaning of Christmas is falling into monogamous romantic love. A good time, Charlie. I'm sounding pretty acerbic about all of this, but it is fun. It is fun. 
As longtime listeners know, one of my favorite holiday traditions is to watch Hallmark movies at a distance with one of my very best and oldest friends in the world. Shout out to Florence in Toronto. Don't pronounce the T. I did it right. We watch these movies together and we like hate on them, but also love them. And like, you know, it's great. And I think one of the things about reading this book is like there were huge moments where it felt like I was watching a movie, like the scene where Wes describes running into class when they first meet and he's late and then she's pulling open the door and she's got her little button down and her headband, which he describes as hot. He's like, I didn't realize headbands were hot. And it's like, because they're absolutely not. Absolutely not. And like, you know, his head hits the door and then the back of his head hits the floor. And then he's like, bah, you know, bowled over by how awesome this young woman is. And he's like, I'm in love forever. I feel like if I haven't seen that in a movie, I feel like I just did. It's very cinematic. But the difference between having it on cinema, especially in a film that has to be 92 minutes, give or take three seconds in that kind of formula is that you don't get repeat moments very often. So we get that from his perspective, but then in the very next chapter, we get it from hers. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that we don't do in cinema because I already know all of these moves and your perspective isn't adding anything to it. It's actually detracting because you had no animus about it. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it's two perspectives simultaneously in cinema, unless you're doing like Rashomon or something. Mm -hmm. I don't think Hallmark movies are making those choices. They're not making those choices. (laughs) What I'm saying is like, we don't get it from entirely his perspective in cinema, like a close up on his face and then redo the scene from her perspective. You're right. We get a dual perspective on screen. And one of the things about Paige is like, you can't do that, especially when you're head hopping per chapter. Which did you find more satisfying, like in this particular instance, which is a very specific instance? Wes's perspective. I mean, like having dual close perspectives or having just like a single shared story? A single shared story, I think. Would have been better. Yes. So this book is very short. I think it's like 75 pages. It's like a two hour read. It hops right along. Nothing wasted. With the speed of eight tiny reindeer. So I was expecting it to be a single perspective story, single first person, but it's actually two first person perspectives. You hate first person. You also hate like single first person. So is this better? Once again, it's worth asking because it's a special case. It's so short. It's so short. I think once it like stopped doing the things that I think are like cardinal sins of head hopping, I was more pleased with the dual perspective here. Like I'll give you an example. We're in her perspective. She's just realized that like she's still at the office. She hasn't even made the text to West. What is head hopping? It's moving between the perspective of our main character. So like you jump into their close first person narrative or you jump into the other. But it happens in a very specific way. It's not just like the normal moves that romance novels make. Right. You change the perspective entirely. It's like changing an Instagram filter. And this happens at the chapter breaks in this text. Oh, I thought head hopping had to be like a rapid thing that happened within a chapter. But then that's just normal romance writing. Yeah, where head hopping can get confusing is where it doesn't happen at chapter breaks and like we jump into a horse or then we jump into the, like the perspective. I thought head hopping was merely a disparaging term for whenever people do it too much or overuse it. No, this is technical head hopping. It is a disparaging term. People in romance don't like it. 
But it's the whole thing. It's a trope of romance, yeah. Well, then Tessa Dare head hops. Almost everyone does. Then why is it a disparaging term? Because people do it too much or they don't do it for the right effect or when you head hop, you don't gain something new. Right. I thought we only used head hopping whenever it was overdone and not used to proper effect. I don't think so. But it's disparaging and also not disparaging. It's just descriptive of the thing. Yeah, that's my understanding. (laughs) Anyways... (laughs) So one of the things that I think is really difficult about first-person narrative when you don't have an omniscient third is that you say things like, my phone beeps, it's a message from Cynthia, my neighbor. She's a retired paleontology professor who enjoys baking cookies and talking about the Cambrian explosion. Who are you talking to? You are in your own head. Who are you narrating this for? You received a text message, it alerted you, and you're like, oh, it's my neighbor Cynthia. You don't think in your own head. She's retired. You already know that. Who is this for in your own head? And then it's like, I know it's for me, but I hate it because like the verisimilitude of it is just like. Maybe Caitlin is in fact the protagonist in her own head. And this is how she narrates her life because I tell you what, Morgan, when you text me, I don't go, huh, a text from Morgan, my partner in my podcast who makes amazing hot dish hash and loves to make a toddy and knows lots of cool things about fan fiction. Morgan. Can't believe that's my top three. It's just the ones that I could think of this morning. Like, <laughs> if I had more, I could do it. Just like cut to me, like sound of silence in the background, staring at myself in a mirror, touching the mirror. Thanks a great hot dish hash. Repeating back those three things. Enjoys a hot toddy. Knows cool things about fan fiction. I think, though, that description does help me understand how something can be disparaging and also just the thing. I meant them all as compliments. (laughs) I meant them all as compliments. That's it. Cool. Cool. All right. Yeah, no, I also think it's shitty now that that would be the way people thought of their text messages. I agree. Dumb and bad. I hate it. I also think you're incredibly smart, well-educated from Kansas. Stop! I don't want to know. I don't want to get to the top eight. Let's just stop. Favorite Christmas songs. Oh, my God. Has eclectic animals. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, first person perspective. I hate it. We know you hate it. That makes That's a really good example. It's stuff like that that makes it really irritating for me. And, like, I think this is a personal failure of mine. Like, it's hard for me to hold two things simultaneously. And, I, like, I recognize that as, like, a difficulty that I have. But especially in fiction, where I'm like, I know that this is information that you want me to have for later. But was this really the only way that you could do it? Because we don't narrate our lives like that. No one does. Right, right. I am definitely the main character of my own narrative and I don't narrate my life like that. But also like the significance of her neighbor being a paleontologist is that she obviously would have an inflatable T-Rex costume as a result of that so that whenever they have their big ending they're both in inflatable T-Rex costumes. Which is another very cinematic scene. Very cinematic. This feels very much of a piece with the Hallmark movies, right? We have the powerful female CEO who needs to like humble herself before the freelance graphic designer slash freelance T-Rex. Who's always loved her. Who's always loved her. Some things that aren't very Hallmark, they're in a big city. 
Toronto. And that's it. Toronto. Hey, is Waterloo like a really good school? In this book it is. Yeah, I don't know. I was just like, why do they mention this all the time? I guess I could have Googled that. The University of Toronto is the good school in that town was my understanding. See, I have no idea. And then they mentioned Ivy Leagues and I was like, is there an Ivy League in Canada? Maybe. See, that's the thing about Canada. They're right there. Right there. They're right there. It's a pretty permeable border. Very. 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Isn't that a cool trivia fact? I like that we know that fact, but not like, what's a good school there? (laughs) It's because we only know Canada in relation to American facts. I think that's true. I do know that there are two really good schools. Malcolm Gladwell went to one of them, but wishes he went to the other one because it was the artsier one from listening to one episode of Revisionist History. I couldn't tell you what they're called. I know that the University of Toronto is a very good school. And there was a time in my life where I wanted to go to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. It's pretty much what I know about that. Why did you want to go there? I wanted to be a marine biologist and study orca whales. No, I wanted to work with animals too. And then I found out it was a lot of science and math. So much org. Yeah. Humanities for me. (laughs) Wasn't going to happen. No, thank you. No, thank you. I thought it was interesting that they were set in a big city. And but there's like a lot of like in stuff like you can tell this book really loves Toronto. I can't tell if the author actually lives there because I don't know enough nuance. Like I can even like guess which neighborhood or area of Chicago a writer lives in based on how they talk about Chicago. Infamous example be (laughs) the girl you marry. But I liked it because it talked about like neighborhoods. And I think even just like having a neighborhood name in a book does so much for your like contemporary world building, even though like Cabbage Town is meaningless to me. No, I thought that was really good. I think the author does live in Toronto. I read the author's note about Baldwin Village, which is the hip place that Wes lives, full of bars and pubs. And while she has invented all of the businesses on that street, she based it on the actual like eclectic nature of that multicultural very hip neighborhood. It felt very lived in and like the idea that you know the barbershop quartet who stunningly and beautifully at one point says between us we've got 400 years of life experience we can figure out your problem guy and I like that they seemed very much a well-established multicultural neighborhood that was really invested in itself where you would have like hip young freelance graphic designers meeting and having full-fledged relationships with geriatric singers like that kind of melding well it was a pretty easy explanation that this like barbershop quartet wants to break into this hip bar scene and so they're like we're gonna get an inflatable t-rex the fact that that works is amazing i think it would work there's something about the carnivalesque nature of christmas Mm -hmm. where people are like willing to accept that and be like, at first I didn't want this barbershop quartet of elderly men in my bar. But now that I know it has this performance art element of this inflatable T-Rex who is going to don angel wings during Angels We Have Heard on High and pretend to be baby Jesus at one point, I will absolutely invite you to my Christmas pop-up. Speaking of neighborhoods and Christmas, rich eclectic neighborhoods, I would like to talk about the scourge of the Christmas pop-up bar. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So Christmas pop-up bars, I learned about this last year. Okay. This bar in New York did crazy Christmas decorations one year and like created a themed cocktail menu. And you know how like all ballets make all of their money off of the nutcracker yes. so that they can do weird stuff the rest yes. of the year. That's what this bar did with their Christmas pop-up. It was a huge hit. So then they decided to franchise out 
their Christmas pop-up concept. And so they have this warehouse full of elaborate ornaments. They'll send a bartender to teach your team how to make these special drinks. They create a playlist Mm. for you. And it created this like engine of Christmas pop-ups. And a bar in my neighborhood, I didn't realize they were doing a Christmas pop-up when I walked in one night and was surrounded by men in plaid shirts with puffer vests over it. Oh, wow. Which is not in my neighborhood. That's the uniform of this pop-up? These people, obviously, they were all like piling out of cars when they arrived. Like Christmas is gentrification. (laughs) Like the pop-up bar has to be not just a signifier, but a leader in it because there would have been no reason for those people to come over from like fucking Lakeview or I wish they were coming from Wicker Park. No, like Lakeview and stuff like that. Wrigleyville. Because who seeks out the Christmas spirit? I guess. (laughs) I'd love to parse that difference between who seeks out the Christmas spirit, because I do, unabashedly, always. And one of the cool things about an established neighborhood that has no capital animus to bring in a pop-up, right? Like, they're not thinking about their bottom line in the exact same way as that, where they're like, I need to bring in new people who have puffer vests that say North Face or whatever. Because in Andersonville, they used to do a Christmas trolley where you could park at the top and then it had various stops and there was an elf on the trolley and it was heated and you could have a cider if you were under the age of 21 and if you were over the age of 21 you could have a mulled cider and so I have this very good Christmas memory where my parents came to visit one Christmas and we started on the trolley and then what we didn't realize is that Andersonville allowed all of the businesses to serve shot glasses worth of a signature cocktail for their business and then all the businesses stayed open until like nine that night they did it on Fridays and Saturdays through the month of December so then my mom was like oh like what is this poinsettia shot it's basically juice but it got I don't know a shot of brandy or whatever and like so by the time we get to the bottom of Clark Street and we've walked like six or eight blocks and gone into all the stores and had every one of their little tipples my mom is like well and truly drunk and like she's just having such a good time and like I want you to understand it's like pitch dark out but it's only like 6 30. So what is the what is the that like this is a tradition in Andersonville that like well okay hold on this is a very good example because Andersonville is a neighborhood full of elderly well-established people already right which means that their neighborhood association is in the business already of being a neighborhood association. Yes. My neighborhood is mostly residential. Mm -hmm. And we have just enough bars to make it convenient to live here if you want to go out on a Friday or Saturday night. And like has been like very stayed in that idea where like if you want to go to a neighborhood, Logan Square is down the street, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the last barrier. But now... Christmas pop-ups moving in. Christmas pop-ups moving in. That's just a difference in time. Mm-hmm. Like Andersonville probably went through something, definitely went through something very similar to what my neighborhood is going through right now. It was probably like 25 years ago. Yeah. And now this idea of like a Christmas tradition is established by like a very like bourgeoisie, older, boomer generation, right? A full generation of people who've been making this event happen. And have gentrified the neighborhood back in the 70s and 80s. This kind of like ugly uncomfortableness, once it bakes long enough, we forget that that's the origin of this like quaint trolley ride was the displacement of people earlier on. Because how much did the trolley ride? I assume they charged for it. Free. It was free, but to bring in people from the businesses and then the businesses had to spring for the alcoholic beverages. 
I mean, it wasn't that much because you can't serve alcohol without a license. So like you can if it's free. Right. Which is how bridal salons, that's why they give you champagne. Amazing. Christmas, I mean, like, we oftentimes complain about it as this, like... Commercial endeavor. Or, like, in the 80s, everyone was talking about it becoming this, like, materialistic, right? Or in the 90s, we were complaining that back in the 80s, we made it this materialistic thing. And lately, we've turned it into this nostalgia machine, right? Mm-hmm. Where you go to a Christmas pop-up bar and, like, Uncle Buck's on the old VCR, and there's tons of Christmas ornaments and Christmas music and mulled wine, and that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And while it's experiential in a way that feels different, it's still about consumption and capitalism in a way that's really destructive directly to communities. I think Christmas has always been that, though. And I think like has always been what? Commercially destructive. Like exactly. That's what I meant by pointing out about how in the 90s we were all complaining about how it was too much materialism. It was all about gifts. Yeah. And we've transitioned to this like movement of like experiential, but it's the same thing. No, I know. But I'm saying like that feeling that you have is even older than the 90s or the 80s hand wringing. It's like, oh, Henry old with the gift of the Magi from like 1907. Right. Like, we've always already been saying Christmas is too commercial. Christmas is tied up with bad feeling, but all holiday, I guess, is tied up with bad feeling. Yeah, that's true. It's a lot of pressure. Christmas just looms so fucking large. It does. It looms very large. Let's talk about why it looms large in this text. Well, why does it? Well, for Wes... It's a Christmas book. It's a Christmas book. (laughs) That's that. (laughs) So that would be one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons. But, like, I think one of the things that this book really highlighted for me is all the ways in which Christmas looms large. Like you want to have a perfect Christmas because like it's experiential, but it is also this weird nostalgia machine. So like if you do it just right, you can recreate the magic of whatever. It's like especially important for Wes this year because his mom had a health scare, even though she's totally fine now. And then we have like the sad track, lonely hearts club Christmas of Caitlin, whose parents have gone to Hong Kong for two weeks and she could have gone with them, but she couldn't leave her company by itself for two weeks. So she's going to spend the holidays by herself. And we all understand that to be the saddest version of Christmas one can have. (laughs) Yeah, Christmas alone. I think there's also this like to talk about the nostalgia machine that Christmas has become. There's this like growing pains thing with this particular story where she chooses not to go to Hong Kong with her parents because now she has her own like adult responsibilities in running her app. And her and Wes, like the Christmas activities they participate in, like they make like those oranges stuffed with cloves. What are those called? The Pomerans or something? Something. And then they're like making gingerbread houses and Christmas cookies and listening to Christmas songs. And like instead of not having Christmas or having a Christmas that is utterly different, they just recreate like a smaller, tighter version of Christmas. And like his motivation to do it is because he's had this like health scare in his family, which is like a kind of growing pains of its own. And Caitlin is doing it because her parents have left and she stayed behind, right? And she's made like an adult choice to have a a holiday on her own. I think that's right. I think that's like one of the things that this book highlights, like how do you carry traditions forward? What traditions do you carry forward? Especially when you're living in a, you know, one bedroom apartment in a major city. It's like, which of these do you keep and why? And then in Wes's case, like he just did all of them. Well, I think it's also like, and I don't think this book is in any way asking these questions, but like, I think it's worth asking, like, especially now, because we're realizing 
how little everything actually mattered. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth asking, like, why do you need Christmas? And like, if you're going to self-justify it, you're going to dig down deep into something that you should probably be doing all the time anyways, irregardless of the idea of Christmas, right? And so I think if anything, like holidays are this like container for things that are otherwise maybe we don't value enough. Mm -hmm. And so we put them all in a, dare I say, Christmas box, right? Spending time with your family, charity, gift giving, communal singing, religious practices, right? Which are things that if we say like, this is important to me, then we should be doing them all the time anyways. Just as Scrooge says, he kept the Christmas cheer in his heart throughout the year. Right. But like a holiday is maybe like a convenience package. Like we put everything that we technically should be doing all the time into these specific holiday places, right? To feed ourselves or like even Halloween, right? People labor all year over one costume and that's like a practice and like self-expression and creativity that you should probably be indulging in year round to feed your soul, right? Remembrance of the dead or like having like some kind of commune or like, you know, whatever, indulging in like some kind of fearful practice. (laughs) I guess fearful practice. That sounds so dumb. Like scaring yourself. Maybe that's something you should be doing more often. I think holidays are a way for us to box up the inconvenient moral imperatives for ourselves. I think that's part of it, but also like, and I don't want to spend too much longer on this point, but like, I think the holidays have become freight with this weight, as you've correctly called it, like this big bang for your buck because of the way that labor works, right? Like if you only have 10 days of vacation guaranteed by your job, if that, and like you also get the two holidays at Christmas and Christmas Eve, then like you're going to go ahead and dump some of your vacation time there because like you get more bang for your vacation buck. And like, that's how I think the weight of holidays have begun to function because you get that day off of work. So then you can spend a few of like your personal days or whatever. So then like you get more of the thing, but really it just freights it because then all of your vacation time goes to like family and you're not doing the thing that you really want to do, which is like zip line in the Grand Canyon or whatever. Like, I don't know. And I think that's like part of it where it's like the Christmas problem, if that's what we want to call it, about how we don't keep the spirit or the thing that feeds us all through the year, as you really beautifully said, you know, religious practice, charity, family, things like that, appreciation in general, I think, of those things that feed community. I think it's also because we can't participate in them in the same way throughout the year because of the restrictions of capital and economy. That's an interesting framework, but it also like negates the experience of people who work in like retail and have to give up, which it just reiterates like a stratification of class being like, okay, you don't get time off during the holidays because your work is really important to helping ultimately the people who do, who are probably of a higher class station, socioeconomic class station than you. You have to be available for them. And that starts at Thanksgiving, right? So it's also this like incredible like restratification, right? If we want to talk about the capitalistic problems rather than like the soul problems, because those people who are from like a Christian background, people who have like a cultural identity with a December holiday, they still have those needs, right? Charity, community, religious practice. And they are still fulfilling those needs in the holiday time. They just, you know, without the same time frame, without like an idea of like paid time off. And in fact, use it as an opportunity to make more money. When I was working in retail, the first Black Friday that I ever worked, the store opened at 4 a.m. I had to be there at 2 
And like that meant that like Thanksgiving had to be over by a certain time so I could sleep to go to my job. And like the big box that I worked for was closed on Christmas and New Year's Day. And that was back in 2006. So I don't even know if that's true anymore. They might open it something at like noon on Christmas Day. I used to work all Christmas Eve day when I was in retail. And of course, Black Friday. Yeah. Getting time off for the holidays is an interesting way of framing it. But like that labor question doesn't even come into play until you reach a certain income bracket. Or even like now, like I'm not allowed to take off time because I'm new at my company, right? Mm -hmm. It's an expectation that I'm not going to like none of this is brought like the book is not conscientious of this besides the idea that like Caitlin is is choosing to be lonely and choosing to work over Christmas which is the worst thing you could choose but of course denies the fact that like most people don't have a choice who end up having to spend holidays alone right and this idea that like Christmas is so necessary that you will go into like spending the night at a friend's house and sharing a bed with him when it's too cold rather than being alone on Christmas. And like from Caitlin's perspective, we gain an understanding of this guy as, you know, sexy or whatever as she is over the course of this visit. Right. It's not like there was some like subconscious level for her where she was like, here's my big chance. She was like, he's the only other person I know who will be in town and I don't want to be alone. But that's true of like all love stories. Like what is your impetus for falling in love? Chance and proximity. There's no one else and you don't want to be alone. Like if we like shave it all the way down, right? Chance and proximity. And this book has that really interesting trope of just one bed. In fact, it's the titular trope. I was very charmed by how we got to the one bed and that Wes's futon is so uncomfortable because like we break from her perspective where she's like, it's so cold. I can't sleep because it's so cold. And then like, you know, we get into his perspective. He's like, God damn, this futon's so deeply uncomfortable. It's fine for lounging and watching a movie. But like and then like he rolls onto his stomach and he's like, oh, God, that's even worse. How is it worse? (laughs) It was so funny. And then she comes like all bundled out and she's like, well, you sleep with me can we share body warmth and he's like fuck yeah did you think this book was funny I thought that part was funny you know I I think like the strengths of this book are really in those cinematic moments our big finale where they're both in the inflatable t-rex costumes and they meet on this street that is like the cornerstone of it this is like a prequel I think for a larger series that includes ice cream lover Mm mm-hmm I do believe, which I think is probably her most famous work to date because of the cover and probably because it's a good fun book. But this is like all of the things that we like about Christmas in a container, right? It's got the romance novel stuff that we come to expect, but it's also got those Hallmark movie tropes. It's got the little nostalgia nuggets throughout. And it's got some really nice little cinematic moments all in 75 pages or less. This thing fucking clips. It does. It really clips. It is so fast. I never felt rushed either. I think that's right, too. It's just hard when books are this short to not start talking about gentrification and how Christmas is this like destructive capitalistic enterprise. And yet we still love it. And I think that has like its own kind of value, because like even as we're talking about it, the thing that I want to do today is like get out my own Christmas boxes and start decorating my house. People have already started doing that on my block. Like somebody's extravagant winter display has been up for three days. I'm so charmed by it. And I think 
part of what's charming about the sensorial experience of Christmas is that you do, like you said, it was carnival-esque earlier. And I think that's exactly right. Like it's like so experiential and like the way that you get to create it every year. So it's like if Christmas got fucked up last year or like the year before, or like the year before that, like you get a new chance every year. And I think like that feels fun for folks. I know it feels fun for me. And I think this book is like trading on some of those things where it's like Christmas really does feel like high stakes, big chance moment. Yeah, like as much as it's like a container for stuff that we should be feeding our souls with year round, right? It's also a container for stuff that maybe should be contained. Like part of me is like balls to the walls, like wanton self-expression, even though like decorating your house for Christmas is just like a new, like socially acceptable palette with which to paint, right? Like your neighbors aren't going to get mad at you. It's a time for us to break rules, mostly rules that don't need to exist year round, but do. For example, neighborhood association. Sometimes neighborhood associations also put strictures on your Christmas decorating as well. But, you know, I think like Caitlin in this book, sometimes we all need like a poke to nudge us over an edge that isn't really an edge, right? It's just a step. And Christmas and other, you know, holidays give us this opportunity for the carnivalesque, right? For this new way of self-expression gives us a different palette in which to paint, right? Like you're like bursting at the seams to do something weird with your house, but you don't know what it is. Well, guess what? Like there's all these Christmas lights now and wreaths and bows and you can do whatever you want with all of this stuff. And like having that like reshaped rule allows you to break a rule or feel like you can and get that like little buzz from it and feel like you're expressing a talent or a personal idea or something like that. Yeah, and I thought that was really well expressed in this book when she starts singing and it's clear that she's like a bad singer, but she takes great enjoyment of it. And like Christmas is another one where you like, you get to sing even if you're bad because you likely know all the words. It's like karaoke, except, you know, there isn't a dead orchestra. (laughs) Like you don't have to be in a bar. Yeah. Or like our hero being like, I'm going to get mistletoe Mm -hmm. and this is going to give me like the right excuse, even though we've already had sex, to tell her my romance feelings for her, right? Right. This little bobbin. Like Christmas also gives us permission to say what we want in a really materialistic way. Like people ask you like, what object do you want? What do you want for Christmas? What monetarily valued thing can I get you? To show you that I love you. (laughs) Right, right. The only other time we probably feel enabled to ask for something specific is like when we get Mm -hmm. married. I think after a certain age, you can't even ask for specific birthday presents, right? It's just like whatever people want to give you, you accept. But at Christmas, you can make specific asks well into adulthood and you know, and also if you get married. Yeah, because you're starting your life, whatever that means. <laughs> starting your life. Literally just never thought about that f- together phrase until this exact moment. It's a rebirth. What a phrase. It's a Catholic rite, isn't it? It's a sacrament, yeah. This week's episode of Womance is brought to you by our friends at Kensington Books and their new release, Don't Look, by Alexandra Ivy. You may know Ivy from previous appearances on Amazon Romance of the Month list with You Will Suffer and What Are You Afraid Of? It turns out You Will Suffer wasn't a promise, just a regular title. Who'd have thunk? 
That title might be regular, Morgan, but the books are anything but. Demonstrating her strong plotting ability, Alexandra Ivy delivers a tale full of chilling suspense and unforgettable twists. Her blend of electrifying thrills, complex characters, and top pacing is certain to captivate readers of romantic suspense and crossover female thriller readers. Ooh, female crossover alert. Let's read that summary. Headline, if you're on his list, you're as good as dead. A woman's naked body is discovered, cold and pale as the surrounding snow. Except for the crimson scarf around her neck, the weeks that follow will bring more victims and evidence of a terrifying pattern. The killer has a list, and every woman on it will get what she deserves. Dr. Lynn Gale followed in her father's footsteps to become a vet in Pike, Wisconsin. Do you know it, Isabeau? <laughs> I knew a person named Pike from Wisconsin. Close enough. For years, she's had little contact with Keir Jansen, son of the town's late sheriff. Suddenly he's back, insisting Lynn's in danger. She can't believe anyone would target her, but someone is hunting the women of Pike savoring every last moment. Kira hoped that his father's frantic calls about a serial killer were just an old man's delusions. But the body count doesn't lie. In this quiet town, a monster stalks and kills, and soon, Lynn will be the last name on his list. Sounds like a really great stalking suffer for my mom, a woman whose favorite TV show is The X-Files until it was Hannibal. She loves bloody novels like this, and I think the romantic twist will be perfect. Amazing. Be sure to get your loved ones who appreciate harder edge suspense or just yourself a copy of Don't Look by Alexandra Ivey from Kensington Books. Mwah! Good morning, Kelsey. I've got to tell you about this Regency romance I just read. Zoe, you're finished already? Oh, I couldn't put it down. Have you read anything new? <laughs> Not since you asked me yesterday. That's all right. I'll just find something I've read before. But Zoe, haven't you read and reread hundreds of these books? Well, they're my favorites. Far off places, daring damsels, true love, and dukes in disguise. Since we both love these books so much, what if we made a podcast? Oh, but Kelsey. I insist. Well, all right, let's do it. Join us, real life friends and real life romance novel enthusiasts, Thursdays on Tea and Strumpets, a Regency romance review, as we discuss a book from our favorite genre and what makes it steamy or tepid. And as the Regency period technically lasted only nine years, generally we're talking post-wigs but pre-telephone. So whether you're looking for a book to add to your TBR pile or you've read our choice already, we've got a little something for everyone. So read along or just listen in. You can find us on your podcatcher of choice. And may all your ever afters end happily. All right. Sexiest part, weirdest part? I want to talk about my least sexy part. I know we don't do this, but I want to call it out. We don't. Because I think some people need to hear this. Okay. She comes to his house and he's like, I'm going to make you dinner. So he reheats a pulled pork meat pie, which I'm guessing like a pulled pork here in America, south of the Canadian border is like a barbecue dish. Mm -hmm. Usually. Mm -hmm. I don't like the idea of like a stringy pulled pork inside of a pie. I don't like that idea. And then to accompany it, he's like, I'm going to make her a quick salad. And he uses just spinach. Literally just spinach. Raw spinach, which is something I did when I was in college. And I did not think I deserved happiness, I guess. I mean, he does make her a vinaigrette. Yeah. Raw spinach is fine in a salad, but it cannot be the only green. Guys, guys, 
guys. Those like little foamy bites are interesting texturally amongst other lettuces, but by themselves, it's like you're eating flat packing peanuts. So that was my least sexy part was the spinach salad. That's a good one. Sexiest part. One of my favorite things about this book is that they start to refer to having sex as making love, which is my favorite terminology, as you well know. And she has this moment where the lights are on. She's on top of the covers. She's totally naked. And she realizes she's very comfortable with that. And that was like a really beautiful moment. And also like a very sexy part led to a very sexy sex scene. And also did that cool thing that romance novels sometimes do, but not often enough, where it shows like character progression and relationship progression via sex like sex isn't like just an and also part of the book it's like a central plot point like an identifier a way of bringing people together and changing their understanding of one another the book kind of waffles on this but her ability to stop being vulnerable in her nakedness right in her physicality with another person very sexy very good what was your sexiest part I think in their first sex scene, when he's like, what do you want me to do? And she's like, uh, I kind of like maybe want you to go down on me. And he's like, I was going to do that anyway. <laughs> but like, let's get to I liked that. And I think you're right, like that she does start out as like less confident, more vulnerable. And that like this super hot Harry Shum Jr. type is like, what can I do? And like... What do you mean super hot Harry Shum Jr. type? That's exactly who I was picturing. That's who you were picturing. <laughs> Harry Shum Jr., yeah. You don't just say that because he's Asian? I mean, that's part of it, but I was, when they were talking about his abs and his pectorals, I was like, oh, I've seen abs and pectorals like that before. He's got a dancer's body. Plus, I don't think about Harry Shum Jr. enough. I'm like, this was an opportunity for me to spend some time in that headspace. I liked how giddy he was to have sex with her. Yeah, the friends to lovers thing is not something we talk about very often, but something that like I enjoy as an idea. And then oftentimes whenever it's like actually on the page, it's pretty boring. It's like two people who like each other, like each other in a different way. But I think in this like shortened context, right, in the novella, it really works because you really don't need to spend a lot of time on development and you just get to have that like giddy butterfly feeling. Yeah, and I think like that's where this book really shone. He was just really giddy. What's your weirdest part? I think it's like honestly his self-esteem. So we talked about this at the beginning where it's like he's very self-confident. He likes who he is. He likes his life. And there's just this like snag where he doesn't feel like he deserves Caitlyn because she's this high-powered CEO. She dates hot shots. She's really smart. She knows the difference between holly and mistletoe on site. I understood because this book was really good at explaining how his self-esteem could be bad in this instance. And like we see it where like he goes to school in a degree, uh, computer engineering, because his parents want him to and he doesn't know how to tell them no because he doesn't want to disappoint them. And he's miserable for four years, barely graduates. And then it's only at that moment that he's able to be like, this wasn't the life for me. I think that discussion where he's thinking of others before he thinks of himself and like this is another moment and I see it in romances not infrequently where like the hero is like you're better off without me like that whole thing and like how that's works through a person who genuinely likes themselves and who genuinely likes their life but they can still have this niggling sort of bronze metal feeling about their own worth. I do want to acknowledge that the book eventually comes to the conclusion that he doesn't actually get to 
decide for her what she wants. Like if she says she wants him and he also wants her, he should respect that. And why wouldn't he move forward with it? And like respecting that you don't know what's best for others. Like it's actually like an imposition. Like if you want to be with someone and they want to be with you to be like, no, no, that's actually pretty rude. Yeah. Um, And the book acknowledges that. But I want to know what's weird for you. Like, what was the weird part? I think that was the weird part. A, he's going to make this decision for her when she's clearly articulated that she wants to be with him, his wish for 12 years. B, that he has this sort of, like, feeling about himself that, like, he really needs an external permission structure, which felt weird for someone who had already, like, gained the inner ability from this experience from college to, like, tell his parents, no, this isn't what I wanted, like. Like, here's this other thing that I want. And so, like, that felt funny, not in a good way. That that just felt, like, discordant. Point A, I think, is resolved by the book. That's probably why I don't feel weird about it, because the book seems conscientious of that. And I think... Point two, they have this great conversation where Caitlin talks about being successful at a young age and is like, you know, I can't help but to feel like it's not a fluke. Mm -hmm. But once again, the book never endorses their need for external reification. The book never endorses their imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? And is always like pushing back on it and offering exactly the right things that you should say to people whenever they share those feelings with you, right? He points out that like, well, yeah, of course you had some luck because this is wild that all of this success has come to you, but like you worked really hard to put yourself in a position and you made the right observation that nobody else made, right? The modern art argument, but you didn't, you know, but they didn't, right? You did. And that's worth something really important and and you come by it honestly. So the book, I think, does a really good job with that. Maybe my weirdest part for this book is that there are no weird parts, like, which I think is what a lot of people want in a romance, right? Like everything felt very measured and earned and thought through. It's almost like the T9 of (laughs) romance novels. God, I'm, I'm like at a total loss for a weird part. I mean, I think like anytime you talk about like a neighborhood that's like hip and up and coming, right? You bring up those questions of gentrification, which loom large and we already went into. I mean, I think the class disparity is really interesting. She is aware of things like his apartment is small and like it doesn't have heat, but she never thinks about herself as being like of a disparate class. Weirdest part, actually, here it is. Her understanding of her own wealth and like the way the book moralizes how she is wielding her wealth, right? Like she could have bought a bigger Victorian, but she didn't because she's just one person, right? She could have a private jet, but like, why would she do that? Why would I want a private jet? Yeah, which feels reactionary to like billionaire romance novels, which are so over the top, but isn't actually a solve for anything. (laughs) It's like, well, then what are you doing with all of that money? Is that just sitting in the bank? Like tell people like, what good things you're doing. You know, something to think about. When you buy a big single family home in a community and there are tons of unoccupied living spaces in urban centers that just cost too much rent. And so there are plenty of unhoused people who are unhoused who could live there, but don't because we have this monetary value, but actually no one's making money off of that space. It's just sitting there empty, which is one of those like twists 
twisted results of our current moment. I used to be a history and architecture tour guide, right? I would do this tour of Wicker Park. And one of the things I would point out is look at these single family homes. You can see how they started out as single family homes, were then converted into apartments and have now been converted back into single family homes, thus raising property values in the area and displacing people. Something to think about, right? I think like if you're moralizing, you should always push yourself like a little bit further and say like, well, what else is going on here? Like, is it enough that she could have bought a smaller house? Like, what is she doing with all of that capital that she didn't spend on the bigger house? What is she doing with all of that capital? I think the way they moralize the wealth of the main character was limp-wristed. Very fair. I also have that noted where I'm like, who cares if she could have bought a mansion? Like, why would she? Who's going to clean it? That was her thinking. But it's like you would hire a cleaning service, obviously, if you can afford a private jet, right? And so it's actually just a project and like, she's normal. Whatever normal means, right? Whatever value normal has is displaced more and more money you have, but you just keep telling yourself that you're normal, right? Because you're surrounding yourself with other people who are of the same class. I mean, like you can't really trust other people to determine normalness, Scare quotes all around for normal, but you aren't really the internal barometer is not trustworthy on that. Womance or nomance? I would recommend it to people, especially folks who want a Canadian romance. A Canadian romance. It's a womance, but I will say like, it wasn't what I was looking for. It's not your cup of peppermint tea. It's not your cup of hot cocoa. It's not my cup of peppermint mocha, but I can see the appeal. And like, it's tight. And I yeah. think the things that work, work really well. It's always a tall order to get as a to like a first person. So like, I don't hold that against this book. The people I would recommend it to are a very narrow lane of people, <laughs> like people who are already romance fans. You know, if you want to spend like two hours with a book, right? And you want to get some Christmas spirit. You want to get motivated motivated to make your own little I'm gonna make those clove stuffed oranges whatever they're called yeah I definitely wanted to make some chocolate ganache truffles I'm like I guess I'll make 12 it's only me and my- yeah you know <laughs> you got just enough Christmas without being saturated what it made me miss though was bars oh god I know talking about going into the bars and you're wearing your Christmas sweater you know bar culture in Chicago is so great especially around the holidays Yeah. I want to tell you a Christmas story. Okay. Referring back to my historical architecture tour guide days, I would do a downtown walking tour and we would go into this skyscraper that was across the street from Daily Plaza, which is where they host Chris Kendall Market. For those who don't know, Chris Kendall Market is this giant like German inspired Christmas market where you get like a special mulled wine mug every year and you eat bratwurst and you look at handmade ornaments like wood shit, you know, Drindles and and Krampus and Oompa bands and and all that fun stuff. And it is fun. And I've gone every year. And I was doing a tour and it was like, I did my tour at like 11 a.m. I would be in front of Daly Plaza. And they set up these like police barricades around Chris Kendall Market so that you just have like a couple of entrances and a couple of exits for security reasons, because it's a lot of mulled wine. You can get some pretty big brewskis there. It's Chicago, right? We've got our case to meets and our booze, (laughs) ready to go. It's 11 a.m. And I'm pointing out how the Daily Center is not actually a Mies van der Rohe, right? It's a fake Mies. It's meant to impersonate them. And this woman just like in her big puffy coat with her fur, she like throws herself over her fins at the hips over the police barricade. Her little fur hood comes over her head and then just projectile vomits, mulled wine that could not have been in her system for more than five minutes because it just like reeks of like acid. <laughs> and cinnamon and it's 11 
7 a.m. and these tourists from like fucking like I can't even remember like someone from Oregon and like someone from Israel and it's like 11 a.m. in Chicago this woman's just like puking up mold wine like across the street from the courthouse. This is like the most Chicago Christmas story I've ever heard. I love it. Genuinely pleasing to me. And like she clearly was drunk. Oh, yeah. She clear like it wasn't like you know when you have food poisoning you don't like stumble your way over to a police barricade and then bleh. and then you don't get up and be like Burton Rally. Yeah. City of broad shoulders. Another time I was in the like underground from the Daily Plaza to the courthouse and I was giving a tour and I heard all these people going, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And I was like, oh, shit. like because people always like get lost down there. And like I thought like an elderly person had gone lost. It was Bernie Sanders. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, I got to help find this guy. Bernie! And it was reporters trying to get Bernie Sanders' attention. So funny. I'm glad he was accompanied by a large group of reporters in the underground of Chicago. Anyways, I guess it's a romance. I'd be curious to read her other books because this is so cinematic and fun, which is, I think, cool for contemporary. Any other thoughts? Just made me miss bars and like made me want to seek out a barbershop quartet singing Christmas carols. Definitely. People should go to winter towns in the Christmas time. I know like going to places like Toronto doesn't sound very appealing in December or Chicago, but it's actually the most probably the most fun time to go to Toronto. It's definitely the most fun time to be in Chicago. It's true. But don't come here. Don't come here. One in 15 Chicago. Chicagoans have COVID. Don't come here. Yeah. All right. Uh, with that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.